Welcome to another edition of Legends of Film. I'm William Chamberlain. Today we have an interview with Gordon T. Dawson. Gordon T. Dawson is a longtime collaborator of Sam Peckinpah. He has worked on Major Dundee, The Wild Bunch, Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, and The Getaway. The Getaway will be shown on Saturday, November 12, 2016 at 2 p.m. at the downtown Nashville Public Library on 615 Church Street at 2 p.m. More later, on to the interview. The Getaway was directed by Sam Peckinpah and you had a long working relationship with him. How did you two first meet? Well, I first uh, encountered Sam in 1965 uh, well before the getaway on a picture called Major Dundee. I was a uh, wardrobe man at the time. Now they're called customers. Back then, actually, we were called rag pickers. I uh, was in on some of the principal fittings when he was doing that in, in uh, Los Angeles before going down to Durango to shoot the picture. I was just in the room, and so I was left with the task of aging and preparing all of the principal wardrobe while the head of the wardrobe department and everyone else went down to Mexico City to get all of the extras, costumes in place and all of that. And so I was under stage nine in Columbia for a month, aging all this wardrobe. And I mean, each actor had nine changes and stages of aging that began look like they started out on a parade ground perfect and ended up looking like they just been through nine months of hell, which they had. So I really got into the aging artistically and so forth, and then put it all in 100 hampers and sent it to Mexico, and that was that, really. Uh, then we started hearing horror stories from, from the front in Durango, where every department was in trouble. Wardrobe was really in trouble. People were getting fired right and left. Turns out that the head of the wardrobe department, who'd gone to Mexico, had just taken all of the costumes he had made down there, which were made out of rayon and all of this, and just stood them up against a wall and just sort of spray-painted it and called that aging. So when the principal actors came out in my wardrobe and the actors that they'd done came out, they looked like they belonged in two different armies. And so Peck and Paul went really batshit crazy about that. And they really didn't know how to correct it down there because you take a blowtorch to a rayon Union soldier's costume and it melts. So they couldn't really duplicate it. So he said, get me the guy who did this. And I found myself on a plane to Durango, and I was terrified. And I had every reason to be. I mean, uh, he was a very scary guy when I first met him. Uh, I'd worked with a lot of directors, but they were all very smooth and nice and he was a terror on the set. There was nobody that wasn't afraid of him. So I immediately got made wardrobe set man, which is usually the number two wardrobe man. And so I had to be on the set with him all day long, taking the full brunt of everything he had to offer. I came to realize something about him, and I didn't know from my low level I wouldn't, that he was at war with the studio, and he was in a little over his head with some of his stuff. And I started to notice him, he would make, trouble for departments and while they were fixing it he would be working with actors and changing things and changing the setup a little i finally got what he was doing and so we first connected sam and i the day he said those indians up on the ridge they've just ridden for four hours to get there they should be wrinkled behind the knees and all of that god damn it what are you doing 
And so I had to bring these Indians down behind the wardrobe trailer, and I just waited for 20 minutes. And I said, okay, go on back up. And the Indians went back up. We didn't touch them one bit. And he looked up there. I saw the camera was in a different place. The actors were making slightly different entrances. He says, okay, now that wardrobe's ready, we can shoot this thing. And he gave me a look, and I saw this glint in his eye. I got it. You know, I let him buy time. And so from then on, I let him buy time. And one night he sent his driver over and said, the boss wants to drink with you. We became pretty friendly on that, on Major Dundee after that. And I, my department wasn't in trouble too much, too much more. And it was really great. And then that picture was over, and I thought I'd never see the guy again. And I was kind of glad, really. I mean... I just thought I'd come through hell, and I got called back on the Wild Bunch. I was trying to start a writing career, and I was just getting going. And they called me. He wanted me to come and do the Wild Bunch and do the rags with him. And he says, this picture is huge. Uh, I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do with it, but the rags are everything. you got to do it. So I gave up on the writing, and uh, I went down and... It really worked out well. We were the only department never in the toilet. And so at the end of that, that picture, he said, why don't we make pictures together? And it was just something. He, now he owned me. You know? So we did Cable Hogue together. I helped him on, on the writing with it. We did the rewrite. That went off pretty well. And then while he was off doing Straw Dogs, he sent me the... 10-page outline on head of Alfredo Garcia and asked me to write a script for him, and I did that, and uh, he did Junior Bonner, and then he asked me to come aboard on the getaway, which I uh, gladly did. So that brings us up to the picture you're showing. As far as I'm concerned, the getaway was uh, probably our most successful collaboration. On the getaway, you served as both associate producer and second unit director. Could you discuss the responsibilities of those two positions? Sure. Well, an associate producer can be a lot of things. In television, it's usually the guy who handles all the post-production. In this case, it was me getting my producer wings. Um, and so the job started out small to keep Stella Stevens happy. She was... Uh, she and Sam had a little conflict, and so I was keeping her happy. I uh, was communicating for him to the crew because, once again, he came with a reputation, and uh, there were a lot of people afraid of him. So I did a lot of coaching behind the scenes of how to deal with him and how not to deal with him and when to take him seriously and when not to and when they may be getting in trouble. Or if Sam had said something to me, I would relay it and try to straighten things out. Also, it wasn't a picture without problems. He did fire 56 people. Unfortunately, he really didn't like to do the firing himself, so I became sort of the guy who had to deliver the news, and that wasn't pleasant. But we uh, we shot a hell of a picture, and I think it was one of Sam's favorites. Okay. Uh, the Getaway is a road movie, and what troubles did you encounter in making such a logistically challenging motion picture? Well, that was a tough picture, uh, but it, it was the easiest of all the pictures. Uh, we had 114 moves. We had, had to shoot in three major cities, uh, and we brought the whole thing on uh, on schedule and pretty much on budget. Our big problems were the moves, but 
it was getting into the into Texas in the first place. Uh, Sam had first wanted to make it in Mexico, then let's try New Mexico, and here and there. And so my, it was my good luck to get in touch with a great, great film commissioner named Warren Scarron, who's since passed, but and he had the ear of the governor, who really was looking to get film cooking in Texas. And in fact, the unions and so forth in Texas at the time, they didn't, they didn't really have a lot of great crews there. So anyone that we needed, we had to bring out of Chicago in, in dealing with the union. So dealing with the union was a little tough in a, in a different jurisdiction than Hollywood. And they, they did. They sent us some excellent people. So that was fine. But, but Warren Scarron really delivered the state for us. We were told that in the beginning when we went in before him, we were told we would never be able to shoot inside the Huntsville prison. And because of really his help, we got it for a dollar a day. It's very clever. It's a, a quick story is the warden told us we wouldn't be able to shoot there. And he told Warren, Warren told me that the Warren's daughter is 16 years old, named Debbie. She's a huge Barbara Streisand fan. And so it turns out Steve McQueen, Barbara Streisand, Sidney Portier owned First Artist, which were financing and were actually were the bosses of our picture. So through Steve, we were able to get an, an autographed picture to Debbie. I hear you're a fan. Well, could you keep up the good work and maybe one day I'll be your biggest fan, love Barbara. And, I mean, we gave that picture to the warden, and he was such a hero to his daughter that night that we did get that prison and everything for a dollar a day. It worked that way in, other t in towns, too. We'd go into a place and say, well, we, got, we plan to run explosions here. We're going to blow up your, your square. You know, we're going to run car chases and shootouts through your streets. And they'd say, absolutely not. And I said, but not before... We throw a big party for all the mayor and the city council and everything, and Steve McQueen will be there and so forth. And so we schmoozed our way with Warren Scarron's help there. That We were told we could never, ever shoot on a train in, in Texas. Uh, they wouldn't allow us even on their property. And then Warren, with his connections to the governor, somehow uh, 25 tank cars didn't get filled with oil that day and that we were invited onto the tracks with the full cooperation of the uh, of the railroad company. So we hustled our way across Texas and we made a we made a great picture and we and we did it relatively easily. You were talking about the prison and the main title sequence of the getaway is very striking as we said it's filmed inside a working prison or as you said right. it could you discuss the filming of that sequence inside the prison? Certainly. I'll preface by saying just the night before we were first to go in, we were told, oh, by the way, we do not deal the hostage situation. If anyone's taken hostages, we're still shooting. So and that includes Steve McQueen. And so that was a decision whether to go in or not. But Sam was a risk taker. And so, you know, we went in. Uh, shooting inside the prison was really very easy because of the cooperation of everybody. Uh, I shot the second unit there. I shot all the, the opening shots with the deer. Uh, any any shots of prisoners without Steve in it, I shot as second unit director. I shot all the little 
widgets and machinery and the jute mill and all that kind of stuff. It was really thrilling because Sam had finally let me have a camera, which uh, I really appreciated as second unit director. So I, I really learned a lot about that. Uh, and the only the only trouble we had, and it wasn't trouble, it was funny afterwards, was was with Steve. Like the one of the shots of in that opening sequence, he's in a, a wagon full of prisoners being taken by horses out into the fields. Well, okay, we got the shot, and Sam yells across the field, cut, and Steve jumps out of the wagon and starts running across this wide-open field back toward camera, and suddenly all the dogs break away from their guards and start chasing him because they're taught that all these white prison suits stay together, and if one separates itself from the from the rest, you, you're good to go. The dogs can bring them down. And I don't think Steve McQueen ever ran faster in his life. He ran right up the stove photographer's chest and up onto the high chain link fence to get away from the dogs. Another time Steve was coming, uh, we finished a shot, and he was just, as he normally would, walking away and to try to get to his dressing room, which was outside the gates. And the guards just drew down on him. They knew he was from the tower, and they, they chambered rounds and, you know, had him hit the floor. So those were the only two incidents. Other than that, it was a perfect location with perfect cooperation, and uh, and, and we were in and out in, like, three days. Uh, you described Jerry Fielding's unused score uh, from the getaway as like a man in a green suit walking in a forest. From your perspective, why was Jerry Fielding's score replaced with Quincy Jones's score? Well, I only know the story. Uh, the, the man in the green suit walking into the forest, Jerry is very subtle, and he everything he does is just to enhance. It's not to... It doesn't have to be Star Wars where you have to sell a model against a black backdrop, you know. So it was just perfect uh, to... To the to the movie, and and so you didn't notice the score, and a great score you really don't notice. But like I said earlier, Steve McQueen was the boss, uh, actually. And uh, after Sam's second cut, it's my understanding that Steve took the picture away and he did some tweaks. But mainly, where his tweaks were, since he was a big guns and car guy. He really beefed up the sounds of all the cars and all the chases and all of that, which and there was quite a few. And so to do that, it just ate up Jerry Fielding's score. I mean, you couldn't even hear it. And so it became disjointed, so to speak. And so I, I, that's, I understand he brought in Quincy Jones to go in over the top of everything and, and sell it. That's the, that's the story I heard. And I'm like a, I'm a huge uh, Jerry Fielding fan. Happened to own several of his soundtracks. Did you ever get to observe the working relationship between Sam Peck and Paul and Jerry Fielding? And if so, what was it like? Well, it was very respectful. Sam was very respectful toward a few people, and that was his always his lead actors and Jerry Fielding for sure. And I didn't observe it because I, as soon as we wrapped, I usually got out of there as fast as I could, uh, and so I was never really involved in post-production. But the few meetings I've sat in on with Jerry and Sam, it was, it was always great, and they could talk in a code and a shorthand that I really 
couldn't understand, but I, I don't think Sam ever respected any man more than he did Jerry Fielding. So it was a very cordial relationship. This next question has nothing to do with filmmaking, but did you attend Sam Peck and Paul's 50th birthday party at Jerry Fielding's house? I've read it was a grand affair. How could one ever forget? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it really was. And and really, to, to get a little blue here, instead of it, when Sam walked in the door, instead of everyone uh, shouting happy birthday like a surprise party, everyone shouted, fuck you, Sam. And so that's how the party started. And uh, I don't really remember much after that. I remember seeing Ringo Starr and Bob Dylan and some people that I recognized, but after a while I didn't recognize anybody. <laughs> okay. Uh, you started working out, uh, working as a wardrobe supervisor, then associate producer, moved on to acting as second unit director and writer. Could you discuss your progression in the movie business? Well, I... Um, I did I did the wardrobe on a lot of a lot of pictures as a second class. I think I started out on Mountain Road in 1960 with Jimmy Stewart and worked my way up. My first wardrobe that I was the chief costume supervisor uh, was Cat Baloo. Then I did The Way West and The Hour of the Gun, and finally The Wild Bunch was my last job. And at that point, I didn't see Sam for years uh after the uh, after that uh you know i i really wanted to get back and do my writing so i was i was writing um and i finally broke through after the writing i think uh cowboy in africa a few things i broke through on rockford files that really got my writing career off the ground i wrote i think 11 and 12 of those things and they were great people to work with, Steve Cannell and that group. And from then on, that got me noticed. I started writing pilots and so forth, movies of the week. And then uh, they decided to bring back Maverick. And so I uh, wrote that pilot and signed on. That, as, that was my first staff job in television as a supervising producer on that just kept going and, and had ups and downs and all that and I finally ended my writing career as executive producer and head writer on Walker, Texas Rangers for six years back in Texas, which is a great place to shoot. Talking about writing and when writing Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia, you stated uh, you don't write with Sam, you just try to write what Sam would like. And when I wrote right. the screenplay for Alvarado Garcia, I was given a 10-page outline, so I stuck my tongue in my cheek and wrote character Peck and Paul. How would you define character Peck and Paul, and how does one write it? Well, it's Sam, Sam's a character. I mean, I, not, nothing like Donald Trump, but anyone can imitate Donald Trump. Everyone imitates Donald Trump. Well, Anyone can imitate Sam Peckinpah. Well, you ought to hear some of the imitations L.Q. Jones does, and they're hilarious, or Bo Hopkins. So, you know, Sam is a character. So we didn't know who the actor was going to be or anything. And so from the outline, this just sounded like if Sam was down and out and playing in a dive, what would, how would he handle it? How would he go about it? So I just kind of wrote it like, I heard Sam in my head in every line of dialogue. 
and in all the unpredictabilities and the sudden rages and and the sudden tenderness and all of that sort of stuff. So I just wrote it like that and and when I sent it to him and he loved it, but he didn't he didn't get it. <laughs> I mean that that's what I did. But there was something he really liked about it. I guess maybe there was an affinity. So then when we got to casting it, uh, I think Peter Falk was one of the first choices, but he didn't get it. But finally Warren Oates got it. And, I mean, I couldn't think of a greater guy to play that role. And I told Warren, I said, what, what are you thinking? He says, you wrote Peckinpah, didn't you? And I said, yeah. And he says, well, I'm going to play Peckinpah, and let's not tell him. And so that's what happened. Is it true that in the original script of Alfredo Garcia, the character Benny, played by Warren Oates, was supposed to get away with the money at the end? And if so, why the change? Well, yeah, he was supposed to get But like like a lot of Sam's pictures, like the, the Wild Bunch, there's two moments there at the end, just before they say, let's go get Angel, and and right after Angel Soskut, there's two points there where they could have walked away, but they decided to die a noble death. I think it's pretty much the same with Benny. And also we realized that, say he did get away with the money, a million dollars, he's going to be broke in two years, <laughs> that character, and he's going to be back right where we found him, playing Guantanamera for tourists in the Clocky Pocky. So we got to give our guy a noble death because he's become a noble man a long way from where he started. And let's not just send him back to where he started. Warren Oates, who played Benny and Alfredo Garcia, was a longtime collaborator of Mr. Peck and Paul. And mm-hmm. I happen to be a big fan of Mr. Oates. Could you discuss the working relationship between Oates and Peck and Paul? It differed. In the beginning, when Warren was one of the group, they, Sam was merciless toward those. Like he would keep Struther Martin and Warren Oates and J.D. Chandler so off balance with yelling and screaming at him and all that. The only guy that really didn't ever take any crap from Sam was L.Q. Jones. But the rest, like like Warren back in those days, in the earlier days, you know, just they never knew what the hell they were going to get thrown at him by Sam. But once Warren was up there, once he became... Benny, once he became a lead, he was treated with the same respect that Sam would give Charlton Heston or Bill Holden or Bob Ryan or Ernie Borgnine or any of those guys. So they had a great working relationship on um, head of Alfredo Garcia. And Sam did let Warren, he gave Warren his head a lot. And Sam, uh, Warren did bring a lot more tenderness to the project than was actually in the script. And Sam did sit back and let that happen. You were the second unit director on Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, and did you do any of the filming of the infamous raft sequence, and do you have any recollections of filming that scene? Yes, I do. Yeah, I did a lot of filming of that. We had to, we were forbidden by the studio to shoot it. They didn't, it was, by then there was such a war between MGM and and our group that you could have shelved the picture and released the camp for. So we had to sneak out and shoot it. And so Sam would tell me what he wanted, and I I got all the long shots, the big shots. Hey, I had Coburn out there. I got the long shots of Coburn. And then Sam would slip in quietly with a real small crew and and, and shoot the close-ups and and that sort of stuff. So we kind of patched that thing together between second and first unit. And there was a few places like that, too. 
funny thing about the second unit director, Sam, told me uh, when he saw the picture of Billy Kid riding through the sunset re reflected in the pond, he said, you lucky son of a bitch, you get to go out and shoot all my David Lean shots, and i got to sit here with the actors and work on dialogue. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and that's a great shot, by the way. Yeah, it was. We waited like four or five days for it. Uh -huh. uh, while researching Sam Peckinpah, I've come across 14 books about him, three documentaries. And how would you describe his work, and why do you think his films still have this everlasting appeal? Boy, that is, that's a tough one. I have no idea. They all have different appeals. I was at a film festival in France where you'd go see The Wild Bunch, and it would be one group of people, and, and you'd see Pat Garrett and Billy Kidd, and it would be the same crowd, the same you know, film buffs, uh, college kids, stuff like that. And then you go to Alfredo Garcia, and you'd look like it was the audience for the Rocky Horror Picture Show. I mean, Jesus, every freak in the world was there. I don't know how those that, those two audiences even match. I asked Sam what he thought uh, about his pictures. And he says, you know, I don't really know what my pictures are about until I read Pauline Kael's reviews. So I have to go with that, you know. The people that review him, and, and David Wells' excellent book, I don't know if you've read, but it's the best book ever written. Garth Simmons wrote a terrific book. They sum it up so well, and I just, man, I was just there for the, the ride. I am not, I have no idea. Final question. You wrote teleplays, like you said, for The Rock for Files, and one of my favorites is The Hammer of Block, which introduced Isaac Hayes as Gandalf Finch. And could you discuss the creation of Gandalf Fitch and how uh, you got Isaac Hayes to play him? Well, I can discuss the Gandalf Fitch. Uh, I wrote him as I wrote the character. I certainly didn't write the actor. I wrote the character, and actually, Gandalf was a typo. I, I, I it was originally Randolph Fitch, and I, I typed a G, and I thought, yeah, that's, that's even better. So that's how. And at that point, that was only, only my second teleplay for Rockford Files. So as a freelance writer, you don't really have a say. You turn in the script, you cross your fingers, and you hope it works out well. I did later have a little more juice with uh, Rockford Files, so I, I said I would write a two-parter for them only if they would get Strother Martin to play the role. And I wrote a thing called The Trees, the Bees, and T.T. Flowers, which Strother Martin did. And uh, that one turned out really well too. But they cast uh, they cast Isaac Hayes, and it was a, what a what a great job he did in it. Okay, well, thank you so much for uh, doing this interview for us. Really appreciate it. I mean, it's, I should say a great interview. I've you've told me some stuff I haven't even read about in the many books and articles I've read about Sam Peck and Paul, and just really appreciate you doing this for us, sir. Well, thank you very much. I, I wish you every success uh, with your showing of the getaway. It's a hell of a picture. It, it was uh, the smoothest picture I ever did with Sam. If they all could have been that, I wouldn't still have nightmares. I would like to thank Gordon T. Dawson for granting us the interview. Come to the Nashville Public Library on 615 Church Street to see The Getaway, which will be shown November 12, 2019.
2016 at 2 p.m. Today's music is from the unused score of The Getaway by Jerry Fielding. <laughs>